Hey, business owners, need help taking payments online? Well, there's a whole world of transactions powered by Elevon. Whether it's through payment accepting, customer connecting, real-time reporting, round-the-clock supporting, fraud detecting or business protecting. <gasps> Elevon supports all payments for your business. To get started, visit elevon.ie. Elevon, your world of payments. Elevon Financial Services DAC trading as Elevon Merchant Services is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. The Big Tech Show brought to you by Elevon. Elevon makes payment taking simple, freeing you up to focus on your business. You take on the world, they'll take care of the payments. See elevon.ie for more. This is an Irish independent podcast. This week we have a special episode of The Big Tech Show because it's our fifth anniversary. 260 episodes ago, Gavin Hennessy and I sat down and I spoke into a microphone with the person who I'm delighted to say has returned to give me his thoughts and predictions on what comes next in tech and media. Mark Little. Tabitha Monaghan, what were you doing five years ago? Oh God, five years ago, I was in college not thinking that there was even a thing about podcasts or the podcasts were even really a thing. And now you're sitting here with me after... Hundreds of episodes yes. of the Big Riding Tech Show. Riding on the coattails of the Big Tech Show. <laughs> and what a five years it's been. It has. When you started in 2018, what was the podcast landscape like then? There were a few podcasts around. There was no tech podcast uh, in Ireland, no weekly consistent one. In fact, I think of all of the podcasts in any newspaper group, we're the only one that has gone out every week for the last five years. And you haven't missed one episode, despite me trying to get you to take a break. And Gavin Hennessy, who's listening, our sound engineer, you none of you would take a break Not for five years. Not a single episode. That's how devoted and dedicated I am to this, uh, to our audience, who now number in the many thousands, I'm and, delighted to say. And what did you think when you were approached about doing a podcast in the first place? It was my idea. Oh, was it your idea? Mm. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I thought we needed to serve... The audience with more than our award-winning articles <laughs> and my occasional appearances on RT and News Talk and all the other uh, broadcasts. So we decided to make our own. Okay, so you must have some standout moments over the last five years. Can you tell me maybe your top three? Yeah, I'd say there are more than three. The fact that we have made front page news and driven the news agenda on some issues has been a highlight. We did it just the other week with my interview with uh, Revolut's Nick Storansky, where he revealed to us on this podcast exclusively that Revolut would soon go into the mortgage market. That resulted in a front page story. It resulted in news headlines uh, all over the country. We've been cited in the Dáil as well. We did one podcast interview with uh, the then air CEO, Carolyn Lennon, which was uh, mentioned and, and caused a bit of uh, a stir. I would say the episode where Gavin and I went to Seattle to cover the issue of homelessness in the midst of one of the world's richest, most booming tech cities, probably also um, a highlight. What year was that? That was, the f that was, I was after one year, I think that was 20... 18, I believe, 2018, I think uh, we did that. So that was a highlight. And then I think to cap it all off, two months ago, we won the best business podcast uh, in Ireland. And we saw off some notable competitors, including David McWilliams. Oh David, God. if you're listening, we love you. <laughs> Maybe next year. 
that was a great highlight. It was a nice coming into the five year anniversary as well. It's nice to kind of get that recognition, I would say. Yeah, it certainly is. And I would say that uh, looking forward to the next five years. And we're starting right now because I'm delighted to say that we have been joined with the very first person who was on the Big Tech Show podcast, Mark Little, uh, Ireland's greatest media turned tech entrepreneur. He has a number of successes under his belt. He sold Storyful to Rupert Murdoch, made a bit of money out of that. He has now sold Kinzen to Spotify and he is now... Uh, with the Swedish super streamer. Mark Little, you're very welcome to the podcast. And if I can say, your journey has been one of the most interesting to watch, both professionally and out of sheer envy from media to technology. As if all of our listeners don't know, you were an RT primetime anchor. You then left in 2009 to start Storyful, which sourced and verified firsthand reports, witness accounts from media companies around the world. You went to sell that in 2013 for 18 million euro, reportedly, to Rupert Murdoch's News Corps. And then in November 2015, you joined Twitter as a vice president for media partnerships in Europe and head of the Irish office. What an interesting role that would be now. Your life there was fairly brief. 2017, you co-founded Neva Labs, which became Kinzen, with Anya Kerr and Paul Watson in what, in what ended up becoming a specialist anti-misinformation service. That's, that was kind of the read that we had. And this year, you sold that to Spotify for an undisclosed sum. Firstly, what, what's, what are you doing in Spotify now? So I'm looking at the connection between these trust and safety professionals who every platform has to varying degrees. These are the people that are looking out for those burning fires, trying mm. to protect the safety of the people who create and use these platforms with the people who are building the safety products that is trying to scale. So I would just give the comparison of the people who are putting out the burning fires every day, uh, connecting with the people who are building safer systems. Mm. So there's a big movement in technology right now called safety by design. And that's understanding that some of the problems we have, whether it's hate speech or any kind of harm, has a lot to do with the systems on which these platforms are built, the algorithms, the recommendation systems. And so my job is to connect the humans and the machine, try to yeah. create this great feedback loop between people like our team who can spot in many different languages these harms and very smart product people who are building scalable solutions to these problems. So I've got this sort of strategic role right now. I'm at that stage where I'm, it's a beautiful point in a, in a career uh, move where I'm asking very stupid questions of very smart people mm. and people are being very generous. <laughs> so yeah, it's in one of those honeymoon periods of my Well, career. I would have thought that there's some people in Spotify asking you questions as well. Yeah, but it's great. Uh, you know, it's funny, one of those things where you join a company and, and Spotify, because it's Swedish and it's truly global and it's based, first of all, on music, mm. there's a generosity we're here where people realize, you know, these are new problems for them. And one of the great things about Spotify is that they don't have to unlearn the mistakes of the last 10 years. They're like literally starting from a foundation level. So they can learn from other platforms what went wrong, what went right. And they can avoid some of the mistakes. So that's one of the most liberating parts of it. We don't have to undo all the misapprehensions and mistakes of the past 10 years. I, I mean, I think you scratch. were working with Spotify before, weren't you, with Kinsey? So maybe that's how this relationship deepened. What kind of stuff typically came up that you would deal with? And, and is that, does, has that followed through into your 
Yeah, I mean, one of the misconceptions is a lot of people think about these problems as, you know, the latest case where Elon Musk decides whether or not Trump should get on this platform or not. But actually, there's a lot more serious problems going on. So, for example, we might be looking one day at almost genocidal levels of hate being directed at Muslims in India. Another day trying to predict where, you know, we've had an attempted coup d'etat detected this week in Germany. Understanding, Wasn't that a crazy story? Unbelievable. Like, and we want to know, could we in advance kind of see where that's coming from, look around the corner for problems like that? Now, are you talking about Spotify here? Well, we're talking about basically looking at any platform, right? Yep. In this case, we're looking particularly at audio and talk mm -hmm. and conversations. And they're a bit of a perfect storm because you've, you know, got podcasts that last maybe two, three hours sometimes. And you've got to delve into the transcripts and understand the language and the whether someone's being sarcastic in tone of voice. So we became specialists at understanding those conversational uh, elements that we had to analyze. And so as a result of that, we became something of a speciality company because of the relationship with Spotify. So it was a kind of a natural progression from a technical point of view, but there was also sort of a purpose alignment. I mean, it was kind of hard to believe that we shared so much in common in terms of the purpose. And I had worked with some of the people inside Spotify previously. So yeah, there was this kind of alignment where it became pretty clear uh, after a couple of years that this was very much a, a match that was gonna result probably in a deeper integration. And finally, the sale just didn't come. Uh, as a surprise to anybody, you know, it was, uh, I was saying someone recently, it was kind of gradually and then quickly. I mean, taking a step back, it must seem like ancient history to you now, it's because it's 2010, but it still bakes Aaron Noodle here in Ireland, in Dublin, in the media world. You left one of the grandest and most impactful gigs in Irish journalism in RT primetime and jumped into your own startup. I mean, buzz and excitement and maybe money as well aside, do you feel that Storyful had as much impact as your time in primetime did? Without a doubt, you know. And I think one of the things I've been blessed with and cursed with is just this absolute curiosity with what's around the corner. And once I see that, I just can't get it out of my mind. So in some ways, like Storyful was an infection that started when I realized as a foreign correspondent, uh, it was only a matter of time before fundamentally that, that job was either going to go or be completely changed. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't viable to continue in the job I was in at the time if I really believed what I saw around the corner was going to happen. So by going to Storyful, it was as much a case of trying to future-proof the thing I loved, journalism, mm -hmm. as it was trying to do something differently. And people thought that I was having a nervous breakdown that someone told me afterwards that they wanted to have an intervention for me. <laughs> Uh, to avoid me making that huge mistake. And part of me looks back and goes, if I'd known how difficult it was, I wonder would I have been so brave? But the fundamental thing that we think about Storyful is if you think about today, for example, in places like Ukraine, we've got journalists who are using purely what they call open source intelligence. That is stuff they'll see on digital platforms, on digital maps and satellite. I mean, we were doing that to locate the compound where Osama bin Laden was killed. Um, back in the day. So I think the impact for us of Storyful and all the people have gone out of, of Storyful now working for New York Times and CNN is that we, I think, have changed the way we think about journalism. It's got to be bottom up. We've got to actually talk to the audience. We've got to get sources that are outside our community. Yeah, so if you think about the impact, hell yeah. I, what we did with Storyful and the people who came out of Storyful, because I built that team, but I didn't do the, the hard work in the end. And the big change that came was changing the way we think about journalism. I mean, you, you talk about 
um, things, had you known what was coming, you might have taken a different view or maybe done the same course, but maybe treated things maybe a little bit differently. There must have been some lessons learned uh, along the way. I remember one at one point you recollecting that you were wondering whether you could make payroll. Oh, yeah. At one point. Yeah, it's funny. When I was a, a journalist and I had been in many war zones, it was about survival. Like I can remember a time in South Lebanon where I got up in the morning and realized as I was carrying two big diesel canisters onto a Jeep that I had a fraction of a chance of being killed that day. And my job was to finish the day, go to the bar and tell the war story. And that was it, survival. Whereas I got into journalism, uh, I thought that was it. And I got into startup land. It wasn't survival at all. It was resilience. What I mean by that is you have to get up every day and you're going to get a kick in the head and you've got to be okay with that. And it's a bit like training for a long distance race. It's not about survival. It's about getting up every day, doing it again long enough that the crazy idea either works out or you learn enough to jump on another crazy idea. So for me, it's been a huge change. I mean, when Storyful was happening, it was a bit like losing control of the motorbike when everyone thinks you're going really fast and admires you for it. And all you think about is I need to stay on. Mm. And then when it all finished, um, it was profound sense of relief, not necessarily joy because we'd survived. So yes, yeah, startup land is a tough gig, but if you can find a way to get up every morning and be okay with it being difficult every day, your body sort of takes over after a while and it becomes okay. So it's a very different skill set and, and required a massive change in the way that I thought about not just my work, but my life. Mm. Yeah, because at the time you've, you've a family and presumably you had a family life at the time. Yeah, I remember selling Storyful and I think it was two days afterwards and the check hadn't actually got to the bank yet. And my wife had to get out of a cab because she didn't have enough money to get to meet me where I was just before Christmas. I mean, it was brutal, you know, and I remember a year into Storyful when we were going out of business and I was going down to the west of Ireland to see my folks, my wife, and that morning I turned down investment. The business was bankrupt as far as I was concerned and halfway to, you know, Galway in a balance slow was Chris Rea singing Going Home for Christmas and I'm thinking to myself, do I tell my wife now? And I did. I told her and she was like, okay, well, we'll just get another job and it's okay. And that was the moment that I confronted my worst fear and it was okay. And after that, I never really had a fear of failure because I was okay with the worst thing that could happen in that business. If you have somebody in your corner like that. Oh, yeah. I always feel. Yeah. I mean, listen, my only boast is I built the team that built Storyful and I had a partner in crime who put up with that. And Tara is with me all the way on that, on that journey. But I you know, learned over time to always look out for other people as well to join you. The idea that an entrepreneur is some sort of solo genius, like I see too many young and not so young people getting up on stages in tech conferences with t-shirts, acting like they're in some way inspired by God. You know, all they are is the strength of the team around them. And that's the thing. And this time around with Kinzen, obviously, I had someone in Anya that I literally trusted with my life. Um, and leaning into that trust and someone with slightly different skills than me yeah, that was the secret. It was nothing to do with me. I, I mean, I was going to ask you about the importance of picking a good startup or business partner. You had worked with Anya Kerr, who was a former journalist with the Irish Independent and, and other organizations. Um, you'd walk, worked with her in Storyful. What was it that clicked between you? How did you know that you could build something with Anya? I think sometimes I find what's great about a partnership is what's not said. Like I didn't have to say certain things to Anya for her to know what I meant. Similarly with me, you know, we didn't have a lot of agonized conversations because I think we had this emotional connection 
um, and, and she's different to me in different ways. Um, and so from the very beginning, there was just absolute trust. I knew that she would always have my back and the back of everyone on the team. And, and if you get to a point where you don't have to sit down every day and check in with each other, <laughs> just know mm. that almost by osmosis, we knew where we stood together. Um, and that trust just got deeper and deeper. And sometimes, uh, you know, we had to say less and less because we knew exactly where we stood. And when times came, you know, time came when she would say to me something that there was a seriousness in her voice, I would know to get to that point, we needed to listen and sit down. So yeah, that's the funny thing about a great partnership. It's not speaking out loud, it's what's not said. Mm. It's, it's in that sort of place where there's a lot of trust that you can just almost have this um, almost emotional connection that defies logic and speech. And I think that's something that I've, just looking back in it, it is pretty unique in your life. You know, not only your career, but to meet someone like that. Plus Anya is incredible at learning and also leading. So this is somebody who has an incredible emotional intelligence. She knows not just what you're saying, but why you're saying it. And so from that point of view, I think her skills, um, she will go on to do incredible things in our career. So I look back and go, God, wasn't I lucky to be with Anya? When she saved my ass once on the Vincent Brown TV show on TV3. We were on to do the papers. I was a nervous wreck. She was also nervous, but um, I could barely speak and she covered the whole thing. She could, Even topics that I was supposed to be talking about, she literally, literally uh, made me look not like an idiot, so I'll, I'll be forever grateful. I've been in that place many times. <laughs> um, looking at the media, one of the things that we spoke about, I mean, you appeared on the first uh, podcast of the Big Tech Show five years ago, and we talked a little bit about the media at the time, which was a natural uh, topic. What What are, is your reflection on that now? I mean, we've got so many things happening. I'm looking at what's happening to public service broadcast for... Uh, example, I'm looking at how that survives, looking at how traditional legacy media uh, survives ourselves and others. What's what's your thinking on, on that now? I think it's always important to separate the business model, which every journalist, the media executive agonizes over all the time for good reasons, from the way journalism is changing. So I think, first of all, you know, strong public media in its broader sense is something that we're all going to have to get used to paying for, just like we pay for education, defense. I think journalism has got to be regarded as a public utility mm. and something I believe very, very deeply in. That doesn't just mean supporting RTE or the public broadcaster, anybody who's supplying the vital service. So I think about local reporting mm. particularly, we've got to be supporting as a but public it, service. Given the tra trajectory of your career, what I'm about to ask you, um, is not absolutely uh, outside the bounds of possibility. If you were asked at some point to be, say, DG of RTE, what do you think you'd do? Um, I'd start running, first of all. I think <laughs> I'd, I'd power and responsibility, the two things together. I, I think with RTE, for example, as a public broadcaster, it's got to start thinking about itself not as an institution which must be protected and more like a platform. I know that sounds like a cliche, but like for me, I would be looking at ways um, for this organization to become a talent agency. I'd say this to any, by the way, any media organization. Think about individuals you want to bring in that have some connection. Um, like I remember a friend of mine used to work in RT used to say they had like about 50 post-it notes on the wall of the rising authentic voices they wish they could get into the radio schedule, which only has space for let's say 12 people in a row in a day. For me, the great thing about digital media, and that's almost such a cliche to talk about it that way, 
but we can have as many voices into a platform like RTE, allowing them to find their, their way. You know, I think of some of the great voices, authentic voices of the last 20 years, like Blind Boy, mm. didn't come out of an RTE studio, nope. rose without any help from the organization. I would love to orientate the public broadcaster to become a talent agency, to be looking for people that are finding some authentic audience, maybe a thousand people on a particular niche subject and foster that talent. Not think about getting them on the radio schedule to get a massive big audience across demographics, but actually who has got the deepest connection to a very authentic uh, voice. And I, and I think that's what I'd look to see. And then marrying that with the previous topic, which was standards in journalism. How do you keep um, a civic and civil uh, conversation going in the country? How do you then, how do we think about issues such as polarization? Because it does appear to me that one of the challenges with all of these uh, new services, silos, niches, call them what you will, is we've never had a more well-serviced uh, siloed internet where you, you pick your opinion and you can have a very, very developed ecosystem of views and media uh, according to that um, opinion. Um, and ironically, it does seem that sometimes it's the mainstream media like an RT, a BBC, a PBS, a CBS, where which provide this platform that allows some of those opposing views to be moderated by a professional. How do you think about all that? I think about like our identities, right? We live in a certain place. We have a certain profession. We have certain passions. Now, in certain places, we need to know the news. We need to know that it's icy and windy and cold outside. We're not going to have two people debating whether it's really icy or not so icy, right? The weather is the weather. And I think there's a certain sense where there's a public space in which we all have to share a bunch of facts about the world as it is based on science and weather or based on what we know a bunch of journalists with a professional code of conduct are going to be able to share with us. Then we can go off and start thinking about our opinions or our passions and have a good row about the football team we support or the political party that we won't vote for. Now, in those cases, that's where I think we have the capacity for, for real energy around our debates. But in every circumstance where there's a strong public media organization, in all the surveys, it shows you have a less polarized society because people have a set of facts to agree on and from there can go on their journeys. See, I look at RT and the BBC. I take the BBC as being a good example. To me, the BBC is one of the UK's strongest cultural exports. It's one of its massive achievements over the last 100 years. It gets attacked so viciously from right and from left as being, you know, in the pay of the of the other side, and it's quite a difficult path that it has has to tread. I mean, you, you know, you talk about reasonable standards of ob objectivity and facts and science. We can't we can't always agree on those things. No, but I think there's listen. Critics of journalism have a really strong case to make that journalism became up its own ass in the sense that it was. It was an institution, the fourth estate. We were untouchable. We were the voice of God and we would tell you what the news was and we wouldn't listen to anybody. And for me, the last 15 years has been that we have got to listen to the audience and engage where people are, not tell them to sit down at nine o'clock and listen to the voice of God. So there, there's a balance here to be struck. Mm, I think there a is lot a balance because some of that audience is also telling you that... Um, you know, you're, you're, you should wear tinfoil on your head because 5G will poison you. you yeah, know? but also because like, you know, we treat politics like a horse race. I think the average person out there cares about, will my child be educated well? 
Do my public health services provide for me? How's my kid going to get housing if they get into a job? But if you look at politics and political journalism, it's often who's up and down in opinion polls. And there is this detachment often between journalism, as journalists want to practice it and often do it on Twitter, and what real people want to know about facts. So I think there is a, a disconnect there. The good old days were not that good for many people forced to rely on kind of partisan journalism. It's a fair point. But I do think there is this moment now where we think about it like a public utility. The things we need to know that are shared facts have to be funded by all of us. And then we all have the right to our opinions. And mm -hmm. at that stage, I think we need to listen to people a lot more, particularly people under the age of 35, who I think are living in a world that is much more delicate and fragile than we, when we were growing up. And we have to listen to those voices and not become complacent. Do you think Twitter will be here in five years? It's funny. I was thinking about this the other day and I realized I'm a bit like, you know, a divorced couple uh, who have to stay in the same house, you know. <laughs> I feel that way about Twitter. Like, you know, this, this place I used to call home is now just a house I stay for the family because it's the place I've invested so much time. But I have to say there's a heartbreak about it because... You know, it, it was never that well run and it was never that, you know, civil to people. But there was something about serendipity and there was something about Black Lives Matter and Me Too and the Arab uprisings. And all of these people who didn't get voices in mainstream media got voices on Twitter. And that's why I was there. And now we have a situation where, you know, I'm not a total critic of Elon Musk, but at the same time, there is now, I think, a, a death spiral into that conversation that we all became part of. But, you know, we've all invested so much time and energy in it, and I still come across things that surprise me and change my mind. So I'll stay with it. But like that divorced couple, I'm really only doing it because that's where I once called it my home, and that's where I still find some members of my family. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you use Mastodon at all? I do. And I find it funny, like a lot of people who are cheerleading Mastodon, it's great for a certain type of person mm. who knows their tribe, who likes the idea of it's almost like a snug where you crawl on people just like you and you talk to them. It does lack the old serendipity of coming across people who've got an amazing take you never thought about. Mm. And to be honest, if I am to be honest, there's a certain performance in social media. Like you go there to test out your opinions and possibly get into a, a little bit of a row with somebody and maybe change your mind. And, and Mastodon is, a, is very civil. Mm. It's great for a conversation. But you know what? It's, it's a little bit too niche, I think, in some ways to take on the mantle of Twitter. But I do think what's going to happen is we're going to move away from mass platforms that we all go to. And we're going to see the rise, I think, of niche platforms based on things like passion, profession. So the federated universe or the Fediverse that is going and finding your little tribe, bringing your credentials with you, and then getting an experience that's personalized, that will become more common. So I don't think one platform like Mastodon is the solution. I think we'll see a fragmentation of social media and you will go and find your tribe and probably graze a little bit in one place. The thing about Twitter ones. is I use it a lot. I still regard it as my main social platform because I'm a journalist and I learn things uh, things there and newsmakers and sports people and celebrities and all of the people that you would have been trying to foster to use the platform when you were at Twitter, they use it. And it's a terrific cutting edge source, first person source uh, of news. I often feel I can't be myself there though anymore. Right because it has become this overly pugilistic uh, uh, platform. LinkedIn, 
has made me cringe for years and years and years. And yet. And yet. I know. And yet. I go on to LinkedIn. And for all of the cringy stories about how, you know, such and such a setback is now a teachable moment in my business career. Yeah. I'm not afraid that if I post there that I'll be attacked. Yeah. Yeah. Get beyond the like hashtag humility, um, hashtag um, yeah. blessed. All those things. I know. Cringeworthy. But I do find a lot more dialogue. I mean, I must admit when we were working, if you're, if you're in a business right now, I mean, the only place to really properly talk and connect mm-hmm. about your professional life has got to be LinkedIn. I think I find on Twitter, there's a performance part to it where, you know, you don't recognize yourself if you really have to engage. You get sucked into it. And it's also a huge amount of bad faith, right? I mean, I always have a survival guide. And that is if someone is really angry at you for a, like a, something that they have no right to be angry about, just walk away. If you're talking to somebody who you have no chance of changing their mind, walk away. If you feel raging and press a button, take five seconds and a big deep breath. So all those survival mechanisms worked for a while. Now it's just unworkable. Mm. Um, so I find myself a lot in the morning. I've taken my Twitter app off my iPad, got rid of it, and now I basically just go and read newspapers I subscribe to. But I've left the LinkedIn app, and it's actually very funny because I get a lot of professional news from that and find out sometimes the serendipity that I used to get on Twitter without the bad faith. So, yeah. It's very interesting to hear somebody else say that because I have wondered my uh, growing impatience with Twitter. I'm, and, and I'm translating that a little bit into antipathy towards Elon Musk in some ways because of some of the things he's doing. But at the same time, I'm wondering, is that just a bias that I have? And maybe is change for a platform good? And, and maybe am I just not seeing the, you know, the freshening up of a platform? But I just can't see it. I, I, a lot of people I trust on these things um, are, are thinking the same thing. You know what's funny? Is I, I think it's the unforgivable sin, I think, these days is unconscious bias, right? So when you go somewhere and you're just not conscious of the fact that you don't know mm. what you don't know. And that's when I see about Elon Musk. He's learning lessons that people who worked really hard with professional credentials learned a long time ago and he's making it up as he goes along. There's a narcissism about that. And, and you know, I've met him and I've admired some of the things he's done. Yeah, he's right sure. about certain things. But he's completely unconscious of his own biases. And when you're with a group of people who have no consciousness that they may be wrong, then you should leave that conversation. And that's the way I feel now when I go and graft. I mean, that's why Mastodon is very welcoming because mm. people actually are quite self-critical but also forgiving. As long as you know what you don't know. And sometimes, you know, I have a bias against anger. But you know what? Sometimes it's right to be anger. So challenging yourself all the time. If you're not surrounded in a conversation, either in person or online, by people who challenge your bias. And that, and that's, don't to be fair, that is still something to be said for Twitter is what I might perceive as anger might be, you know, um, righteous enlightenment, might be somebody else, ex, you know, exposing a problem to the world. Well, I think one thing is also watch out for the algorithms, right? So I find myself like, you know, 10 years ago, I would be dragged for that, you know, top 10 list of diet tips for aging journalists or whatever it would have been, you know, like the algorithm would have got that one down actually. (laughs) And it would have known my worst instincts and it would have capitalized on that. Now I judge my consumption of social media and online media by how intentional it is. And is it rewarding what I want, where I want to be? And so I find myself thinking a lot more then about the 
skill of these recommendation engines, mm. how much control I have over it. I'm a curator by heart, so I want to be able to twist and change my journey a little bit. And so that's what I'm finding. I'm judging every online platform I go to, whether it's a mainstream media site or it's a social media site or it's a content platform, by how well they know who I want to be, not who I kind of deep down in my worst, darkest nightmare is and capitalize on it. So there's an interesting test to be able to put on your consumption of all kinds of media. That brings us neatly into our last topic, which is Spotify wrapped. Because in my Spotify wrapped, my last, uh, my top five, because one of our speakers in the house is a communal speaker, Olivia Rodrigo snuck into my top five, not my choice, our 20-year-old stepdaughter. I was having a a look at yours because you posted yours on LinkedIn and you describe yourself as a middle-aged indie cliché. So I see in your top five songs, uh, tracks by The Shins, by Velvet Underground, by Islands, and somebody called The Irreversible Entanglements, who I had to look up, who apparently are a liberation-oriented free jazz collective (laughs) formed in early 2015 by saxophonist uh, Kier Neuringer, poet poet Moore Mother, and bassist Luke Stewart. The Irreversible Entanglements. And when this came up, by the way, first of all, I was in the top 9% of all Irish Spotify listeners. So I struck this great work-life balance this year where I couldn't spend any more time at Spotify unless I actually joined the company. So that's <laughs> going to be marked out now. But when this came out, I was actually in, in Sweden um, when this came out. I was like, I had no idea who that was. And I had to go and listen to that song again. It's called Open the Gates. And it's what I was talking about when I was saying intentional. Like, I definitely know that that's the kind of song I'd like to think. You want like. to be a liberation-oriented free jazz collective fan. <laughs> yes. I think that's probably, I'll get that on a T-shirt and wear that from here on in. But the funny thing was the recommendation algorithm knows deep down what I want to hear, what I'll be happy with in the morning. So I generally have a 2022 playlist. I collect songs. It recommends something to me at the end of the day. I'll put it on the playlist. So that was looping all the way through the year. And also myself and my family, we share on Saturday nights the phone and we'll go around and my kids will say things like, have you ever heard of Steely Dan? Or I love the Smiths. And so as a result, I realized that this top five is the result of a combination of learning new stuff, interacting with an algorithm that is all about making me feel like I've got to the coolest song even if I didn't know I wanted it in the first place. I mean, so it's, I have to say, even I would say this, even if I wasn't working for Spotify, that's proof of that idea. I'm only going to spend time with a platform where it's rewarding my best intention, even if I didn't know that's what it was. And that's some of the beauty about it. Mark, you're an entrepreneur by heart. You're now with a big company. You have had so many interesting uh, step changes in, in your career. You describe yourself as middle-aged. How many more changes do you think are in you? So I would disagree. I'm actually an entrepreneur by necessity, not by choice. In fact, if anything, I would rather go back and not have to be an entrepreneur because I just saw something around the corner and realized nobody else was building it. So one thing for me, joining Spotify at some point during the decision, like as it was, we were almost unnaturally well-suited for this company and I was like a bit suspicious and I so had dinner with someone from Spotify and they said, I can see in you, you're a little bit post-traumatic stress disorder of working for Twitter and you've worked for Rupert Murdoch and you've worked for the broadcaster. And like, no, no, sometimes actually it, this is really the case. And what I found out with Spotify was that it's a Swedish company and it's global. 
And it's starting from kind of scratch, which is an incredible place to be when you're my age, at my stage of my career. And you're meeting people who say, right, tell me all the mistakes you've made. Tell us all the mistakes you know that have been made. And let's see if we can get it right. Now, how long that lasts, um, as far as I'm concerned right now, I'm starting from scratch again with a bunch of people who are literally saying, that's our mandate. How do we build something safer by design from scratch, from today? Tell us what you know, and everybody here will give you a listen and will be generous. And like in that environment, you don't want to go anywhere else. So long may that continue. I think sometimes you do get to a point where you say to yourself, enough is enough, enough risk. Um, I had this sort of Damocles hanging over me um, where all my money was put into the businesses I've started. It's a lonely place. Sometimes you're soaking up the anxiety of everybody around you so that they don't have to feel anxious. And at a certain point, you start enjoying yourself a little bit more by being a bit more intentional, slowing it down a bit, and most of all, like, listening. Because I've been pitching my whole life. And now it's great. I just get to sit there and what they say, actively listening. So it's funny, I have my Spotify merch here and the slogan is listening is everything and for a lot of people that may sound like a silicon valley mantra but that's kind of what i've been looking all my life for is somewhere where i can say yeah listening is everything and that's a good place to be liberation oriented free jazz collective <laughs> I, it, it's, you're slow gates. jamming your way into it mark you were there for our first episode uh, five years ago uh, for this podcast thank you very much again for coming oh. in for our fifth anniversary hope you'll come back in an, in another yeah this one we'll talk about next time is generative ai that's the next Gener big thing. oh god don't let, let's okay let's park that one and my thanks to tabitha monahan who produced today and also to gav hennessy on sound for me adrian weckler you've been listening to the big tech show and we'll talk to you at exactly the same time next week bye-bye